We have the joy of returning to the study of John chapter 17, John chapter 17. As I mentioned last week, this is an incredible privilege to study it because we are actually eavesdropping on a very high-level conversation in this chapter. It is an inter- Trinitarian conversation in which we find Jesus, the Son of God, praying to his heavenly Father, the real Lord's Prayer, we call it, just before Christ was going to enter the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before his death, where he would be arrested, taken to a trial at which he would be sentenced to death by crucifixion. In this prayer, Jesus first prayed for himself. Then he goes on later to pray for those disciples, those 11 men that were with him. And then he concludes the prayer by praying for all those who would come in the future to be his followers. Now last week we began our look at that first section. It's verses 1 to 5 in which we find Jesus' prayer for himself. What Jesus said in this section of the prayer surfaces two confirmations related to his earthly ministry. We looked at that first one last time. Number one was the confirmation of Jesus's mission. Found that in verse one. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. We are reminded there of Jesus's mission. When he came to earth, it was to glorify the Father, and he fulfilled that mission by perfectly and always carrying out the Father's will, even obeying him all the way to the cross. So today, we continue looking at verses 2 through 5, where we find the second confirmation related to his earthly ministry. We saw the confirmation of Jesus' mission, now number two, the confirmation of Jesus' message, his message. Now, we can actually identify a couple of facts about this message. Here's the first fact. It is based upon a delegated authority. The message that Christ preached when he was on earth is a message based upon a delegated authority. Let's see how this idea is found in our verse, verse 2. The prayer continues, Christ says, even as you, praying to the Father, gave him, talking about himself, himself, even as you gave him authority over all flesh. Now the timing of that statement certainly seems rather unusual. After all, Jesus was about to be arrested, and yet he claims to have authority. He was going to be under the authority of the Jewish priest and the Roman soldiers who were going to crucify him, and yet he says authority had been given to him. So what kind of authority was that? Well, the verb gave that is used here is in a tense, a particular tense, that indicates that this action of giving was completed at a point in time in the past. So it refers to that point in eternity past when the Father permanently invested the Son with some authority. And in this case, he says authority over all flesh. Now that term flesh is just a way of saying all humanity, all people. 
Yet at the same time, we know that in the New Testament, that term flesh does carry a moral and spiritual nuance, referring to the effect that the fall had on us, the effect it had on all our human faculties. So Jesus was not merely referring to all people, but to all humanity characterized by a sinful nature. Therefore, when God gave his son this authority over all flesh, Jesus was assuming this delegated authority. He was assuming lordship, we could say, over a race corrupted by sin. Of course, when it comes to authority, let's don't forget he had always been the second person of the Godhead, the second person of the Trinity. So for that reason, the Son, the eternal Son, already had absolute authority of God in his very essence. But Christ received from the Father a specific kind of authority, and that is the authority necessary to save sinners, thus an authority he exercised as the incarnate Son when he came to earth to perform his earthly ministry. Now, throughout his ministry here on earth, Christ did manifest this delegated authority. He manifested it in his teaching. He manifested it in his miracles. He manifested it when he said he had the power to forgive sins. In fact, it was because his authority was clashing with the authority of the Jewish leaders that they were often so angry at him. It's what prompted them to plot his death. But yet, even that death was under Jesus' authority. I'll recall your mind to what we saw in John chapter 10, verse 18. John 10, 18, Christ says, No one has taken my life away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. Here's what he says. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. But here in our verse 2, Jesus says that it was because of this authority that he was able to give something away at least to a certain group of people. And that leads to the second fact about his message. It was based upon a delegated authority, but number two, it is centered on a singular topic. Centered on a singular topic. Verse 2 continues. That to all whom you have given me, he, talking about himself, the Son, may give eternal life. Now, this reminds us of something we've already seen in the Gospel of John, that out of all humanity, there are particular persons who were especially given to Christ by the Father so that they would be saved. Let me just recall your attention to how this has been articulated in the Gospel of John already, especially John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me, Christ says, will come to me. Who come to Christ? the ones that the Father gave him. Verse 39 of chapter 6, Christ continues, This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing. Fast forward to John chapter 10. Jesus calls this same group of people by a different label. He calls them his sheep. John chapter 10, verse 3. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by their name. Who hear him and come to him? His sheep. Verse 11 of John 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 
So all people, according to Scripture, are freely invited to receive salvation through faith in Christ. We are to preach the gospel that way to all people, inviting them to come to salvation in Christ through faith. But salvation is applied effectually only to those that the Father gave to the Son, or as Jesus called them, the sheep. These are the only ones who will come willingly to Christ. And those who come willing to, willingly to him, look at our verse again, receive a gift from Jesus. It says in our verse, this gift is eternal life. Now that really is the central theme of John's gospel, that Jesus is the source of eternal life. If you go back to John chapter 3, we found John the Baptist preaching that very message. John the Baptist preached in 336, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. Jesus himself frequently mentions it in the Gospel of John. Here's just one example. John chapter 5, verse 24. Christ said, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life, meaning that same eternal life. The Apostle Paul understood this gift of eternal life. He understood that it was a gift from Christ to all who believe in him. The familiar words we see in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Some misunderstand, though, what this eternal life is. And by that, I mean there are those who think of it only in terms of life that is everlasting or the idea of living forever. Well, it is that, but it's more than that. We know that because Scripture teaches even the lost, those who are not given to the Son, those who are not the sheep, they live forever as well. Listen to Matthew 25, verse 46. And as you listen to it, you'll hear the word eternal twice. It's the same word both times. One time used to talk about the eternal existence of the wicked, those who are not in Christ, and one to talk about those who come to Christ. Matthew 25, 46. The lost will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Used that way in one verse, they mean the exact same thing, everlasting, something that doesn't end. Just one more thing about the eternal state of living that will be the experience of unbelievers. That eternal state is also called the second death, especially in the book of Revelation. A couple of verses, Revelation 20, verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Then later in chapter 21 of Revelation, verse 8. But the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and the immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So obviously the eternal existence of those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ are not the same, but they're both eternal. But for the believer... This eternal existence includes not only living internally, but living eternally in the presence of God in heaven. 
It starts with that understanding of eternal life. This will be an entirely new spiritual condition. We are going to exist forever in a glorified state, which means we will be finally freed from the very presence of sin. So that is the ultimate sort of culmination of this thing, this gift called eternal life. It's what we will experience in heaven. But we also possess it now, even now in our earthly existence. John 5, 24. He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. That's present tense. Has it now. That means that eternal life is more than just a a measurement of length of time. Eternal life, as Jesus uses it, and as we find it in the Gospel of John, is referring to a particular kind of life, a quality of life. Our faith in Christ creates an entirely new life now, from the moment of our saving faith onwards. We live our lives with a new power, We live our lives with a new motivation. We live our lives with a new purpose. All of our human faculties are governed by a new spirit. And thus we enjoy fellowship with God, intimate fellowship with God. Forever, for sure, in heaven, but we enjoy that fellowship with him now. But again, it's clear in Scripture that only those who have been given to Christ will receive this gift of eternal life. It's in our verse, but listen to Acts chapter 13, verse 48. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Who believed? How many believed? As many as had been appointed to eternal life. That's another way of saying the sheep. It's another way of saying those who had been given to Christ by the Father. There are other verses that support that that don't use the terms eternal life, but the same thought is there. Too many to read, but I'll read one more. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, God has chosen you from the beginning, it's a way of saying before time, for salvation. Now all of that is one side of what scripture teaches. When it comes to salvation, there is clearly a divine side to it. And yet scripture just as clearly teaches that there is a human side. It is people's response of belief or unbelief then on the human side that determines whether or not they receive this gift of eternal life. So which side do we teach? We teach both. Both sides, because Scripture teaches both sides. In any case, this is an important way that the Son glorifies the Father. This connects with verse 1. His desire was to bring glory to the Father. This brought glory to the Father when the Son exercised the the authority that had been delegated to him by the Father to preach this message about how to have eternal life and to give that gift to those that the Father had given to him. That glorified the Father. It glorifies the Father because it tells something about the Father's heart. It reveals the love and compassion that the Father has for all humanity, fallen people. Familiar words to us, John 3.16, for God so loved the world, meaning the world of all humanity, the flesh, fleshy people. He loved that lost world so much that he gave his only begotten son, sent him to earth, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. 
So the point made by our outline is that this is the very center, the very heart of the message that Jesus authoritatively proclaimed. It was a singular message. It wasn't a military message that he came proclaiming. It wasn't a political message. It wasn't a social justice message. It wasn't a financial message. It wasn't a psychological message. His message consistently was that anyone who comes to him in humble, repentant, submissive faith will be given this free gift of eternal life. It's not something that can be earned. It's not something deserved. It's his gift. And it is a gift that only he can give. Only the Son has been delegated this authority to give this gift. Now, this singular message about eternal life, that actually continues in verse 3, where Jesus defines this eternal life a bit further for us. Verse 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. Now, that Greek word translated know in English is important because it's not a term that refers to just mere intellectual apprehension of something or knowledge of something. It refers to something deep. In fact, it refers even to more than a deep knowledge about something. It's a word that refers to a deep and intimate love of something, a deep and intimate love relationship. So when it says this is eternal life, that they may know you, God, it means that they may know you intimately and love you and have a relationship with you. Listen to how Christ used this same word know back in John chapter 10, that great chapter about the good shepherd. John chapter 10, verse 14. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Does it mean some sort of intellectual knowledge? He knew where they were and who they were? No, he loved them, and they loved him. Verse 15. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father. It wasn't just an intellectual apprehension of one another. The Father loves intimately the Son. The Son intimately loves the Father. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. I know them and they follow me. Who are the followers of Christ? The ones that Christ knows intimately. It is those who know God who possess eternal life. Now, what does it mean to know God? Well, it certainly includes knowing something about his character and his nature. How can we know God's character and God's nature? Well, one way we can learn about God's character and by God's nature is looking at the natural world around us, according to Scripture. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, That since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, he says, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. We look at creation, we look at the universe, we should be able to see evidence of God's eternal power and divine nature. You could add to that just God working his will out in providence through history. As we see history unfold, we see the evidences of God's power and God's sovereignty. So creation, along with God's rule, working out in history, display his goodness and power. I like the way Richard Phillips summarizes it. God has designed the creation to be a theater for the display of the glory of God. A grand theater 
as we look at the universe, as we look at history. But to be saved, to receive the gift of eternal life, we require more knowledge of God than that. We require the revelation of God that he has graciously provided in Scripture. The Scriptures reveal God in his attributes of holiness and truth and justice and mercy and goodness and love and grace. And it is this knowledge that the Holy Spirit then uses to create saving faith in someone's heart so that they receive the gift of eternal life. Which means that saving faith that the Holy Spirit has created through the truth about God results in that person now worshiping God, loving God, being devoted to God. You can say it this way. True knowledge of God leads to a personal relationship with Him. The evidence of having eternal life is that we walk with God as His people. We live in fellowship with God. We devote ourselves to the things of God, to His Word. We walk before Him daily in faith, trusting Him. We lift our hearts to Him in prayer and gratitude for who He is and all that He does. We honor Him daily in seeking to obey practically His commands. This evidence of someone receiving the gift of eternal life. The point is that all who come to enjoy ultimate life in heaven are the ones who know God now here on earth. They are the ones who learn the truth about God. They are the ones who have received him and worship him as God. But look at our text again. The wording is so crucial. Our verse emphasizes it that it's only the true God that is connected to this gift of eternal life. In other words, the God revealed in Scripture. Knowledge of just any God won't do. So when we think of what is the opposite of knowledge of God, it's not just the absence of knowledge of God, it's the belief and knowledge of false gods. Which is why 1 Thessalonians 1.9 says this, Paul knew about the Thessalonian believers, who they were before. They were worshipers of gods. Everybody's a worshiper of something, of some sort of God. They end up being gods we've designed ourselves or a definition of God that we've created ourselves. But either way, it's a false belief and a false God. So in 1 Thessalonians 1.9, Paul says, this is what I know about you. You turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God, he says. One more thing, though. We do see something about God's nature and character and history and creation. We certainly get a a more complete picture of God's character and nature uh, and his nature in Scripture. But our verse makes clear once again that this one true God has supremely revealed himself in this way. It's in the person of his son. Look at verse 3 again. But you know the true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Knowledge of the true God cannot be separated from, cannot be divorced from knowledge of the eternal Son, Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus said this in John 14, verse 7, which I've repeated several times along the way in our study, John 14, 7. If you had known me, Christ said, you would have known my Father also. The two can't be divorced from one another. Jesus is himself the absolute supreme and truest revelation of the Father. 
It is only in and through Jesus Christ that any sinner comes to the knowledge of the true God and thus receives the gift of eternal life. By the way, this is the only place in Scripture where Jesus refers to himself this way. He certainly is referred to with the complete title, Jesus Christ, by other authors, other people, but this is the only place in Scripture where he refers to himself this way. And that full name is important because it emphasizes, respectively, his humanity on one side, his deity on the other. The name Jesus means God saves. We're reminded of what we studied before Christmas, Matthew chapter 1, when the the angel came to Joseph to explain to him why his betrothed one, Mary, was pregnant. The angel explained all that. That child was of the conceived of the Holy Spirit, but said, you will name him Jesus. Matthew 1.21 says, because he will save his people from their sins. He'll save whom? His people. The ones the father gave him, the sheep. But he's also the Christ. That's a title. It means the anointed one. It's the New Testament version of what we find in the Old Testament, the promised Messiah. You see that brought together in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 41, when Jesus was putting together his followers, those men. It says there about Andrew in John 1, 41, that Andrew went and found his own brother Simon and said, we have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. This is the one we must believe in, Jesus, who is the Christ. We even must know and believe that he's the one sent by God. Verse 3 says that, whom God has sent. Paul said it this way in Galatians 4.4, 4, that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son to be born of a woman, born under the law. So all of this means that Jesus is not just some sort of moral example to us. He's not just some great teacher. He is God come in human flesh, the one promised as the Messiah, the one who was sent by the Father to pay for the sins of the sheep. So let me summarize it. This knowledge of the true God that's related to eternal life, again, is not mere intellectual knowledge. It is no simple acknowledgement that there was a Jesus or that there is a God or that Jesus is the Son of God. It is beyond that. It is a personal trust in Him as the Savior who died in the place of believing sinners. It is submission to Him as the Lord of all things. My point this morning, that is the singular message that Christ proclaimed. And therefore, it is the message that we still proclaim today. Well, Jesus then, as he wraps up this section of the prayer, uh, that's for himself, these first five verses, he actually returns in verses four and five, he returns to the topic that we looked at first, his mission, glorifying the Father. And that makes sense, really, because the mission and the message cannot be separated from one another. They're two sides of the same coin. But he puts the mission now in terms of doing the Father's work. Verse 4, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Jesus said that more than once along the way. He commented on that, John 4, verse 34. He said, my food, this is what he said to the people listening, my food is literally to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish 
his work. John 5.36, the the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, they testify that the Father has sent me. So by doing the works that the Father sent him to do and gave him to do, Jesus glorified then the Father. And that was true throughout his ministry again. Teaching, miracles, all displaying God's glory. In fact, even the incarnation, him coming to earth, accomplished that. But here in our verse, he does have in mind the upcoming death as well. He's wrapped it all together, even though it hadn't happened yet. Uh, anticipating it, or as Augustine put it, Christ says here that he has finished that which he most surely knows that he will finish. So the point is, on the cross, Jesus displayed the perfect holiness and justice of God as God poured out his holy wrath in fullness on the Son to pay for our sins. And as he hung there, he displayed, the Son did, through his death, God's goodness. God's truth, God's grace, God's mercy. Jesus received that work from the Father to do, and he completed that work, and he brought glory to the Father. In a sense, he's doing a a self-work evaluation here. He's completely satisfied by his work. And he says that the Father is completely satisfied by the work he did. This is ultimate job satisfaction. I don't think any of us can ever say this perfectly. But Jesus did. Father does. One more additional thought, by the way. If if all the words and deeds brought glory to the Father, then that means there was never a moment that sin was mixed in to anything Jesus thought or did. We have a word for that in theology. It's called the impeccability of Christ. It means the sinlessness of Christ. Otherwise, he would not have fully satisfied the Father, which, of course, we know is taught in the rest of Scripture. Hebrews 4.15, about our great high priest who's who's experienced the things we've experienced. He's been tempted in all things as we are, Hebrews 4.15 says, yet without sin. Peter proclaimed it in 1 Peter 2.22, that he committed no sin, nor was there ever any deceit found in his mouth. Full job satisfaction. Well, at this point, you can sort of sense that Jesus is just infused with this joy and this sense of triumph. Even though he was about to die, he was infused with the triumph that would take place through his death and resurrection. And so as he wraps up the prayer for himself, he he, he affirms something. He affirms that his desire, once it's all done, He affirms that his desire is to resume something. He calls it the glory that he had before, the glory that he laid aside when coming to earth. Verse 5, now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Now, I reviewed this with you last week. I kind of walked briefly through that with you, that Christ was full of glory as a member of the Godhead. But yet, Philippians 2 tells us that he came to earth, he divested himself of the glory. He did not lay aside his deity, but all the prerogatives and the glory that went through that, with that, he took upon a human nature. But when Jesus says here, in our prayer, this prayer to the Father, 
that he wanted to return to the glory that he had before the world was, let me tell you what he did not have in mind. He is not saying here that he had in mind a complete and literal return to the exact state he was in before he took on a human body and nature, before he became the God-man. Track with me here for a moment. He knew that he would be, it would be, as a true man and true God, the perfect God-man, in his glorified body, that he would actually ascend to heaven. And that's exactly what happened. It was in a glorified body that he was raised from the dead. It was in a glorified body, human body, the glorified God-man that he appeared to so many after the resurrection. It was the glorified God-man that he ascended back to heaven to be seated in the place of power and glory. Therefore, when the living word, as John 1 calls him, the eternal son, the eternal word became flesh, that condition in the incarnation was not intended to be something temporary. It was permanent. When he rose with a transformed, glorified body and in it returned to heaven, yet at the same time he did return to glory, the glory that he had before the world began. It was a glory that was rightfully his. I mean, just because he's a divine member of the Godhead, the Trinity, but it's a glory that's rightfully his due him because of his perfect submission to the Father, completing all the works. And that's where he is today. Jesus is in heaven, now glorified as both God and man, forever a testimony to his death for the sheep, for sinners. As a side note, our same author, John, who was there that night, heard Jesus praying these things, there was going to come a point in the future that he didn't know about that night when he heard Jesus praying these profound things about returning to glory. There came a point decades later when the Apostle John had been arrested and exiled on the Isle of Patmos because of his testimony for Christ. There was going to come a point where John was actually going to see Jesus in that form as a glorified God-man. Let me read it for you. It's wonderful. It's in Revelation chapter 1, verses 13 to 18. We've been studying the book of Revelation here on Wednesday nights. We're about to pick back up on that this coming Wednesday night. We looked at this in Revelation chapter 1. John had a vision. Jesus came to him. In what form? The glorified God-man. Let me read it. Revelation 1, starting verse 13. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw... One like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it's been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters." That's, that's a picture of a glorified individual. It goes on. In his right hand, 
he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. No doubt, that vision greatly encouraged John. Like I said, John was there. John heard Jesus pray that this would happen, and it did. It proved that Jesus had indeed returned to the glory for which he prayed for on the night of his arrest. This puts a whole new twist as you read the prayer. Jesus was thinking all of that. So all of this really affirms that the hour that came, the death of the Messiah, it was all an essential and deliberate part of an eternal plan, God's eternal salvation plan. A plan formed in eternity past, before the beginning of time, when God purposed to save a remnant out of the human race that he knew he was going to create and whom he knew would even rebel against him. Paul explains it this way in Titus 1, verse 2. And he puts it in terms of the free gift of eternal life here. Titus 1, 2, he says that eternal life is a gift, listen to it, which God promised long ages ago. And that phrase in the Greek literally means before time ever began. The idea of redeeming people out of a fallen human race has always been God's, part of God's sovereign plan. Here's another statement by the Apostle Paul, something similar, 2 Timothy 1, verse 9. Christ has saved us and called us, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose, God has saved us, according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. And that phrase in 2 Timothy 1.9 is the same Greek phrase as in Titus that means before time ever began. So God's promise to save his own, made in eternity past, according to his own purposes, according to his own grace, independent of any outside influence, certainly independent of anything about us. When all this took place, there was no one there in existence but the triune God. A promise of eternal life formed. But our eavesdropping into the prayer the night before the crucifixion lets us know that that divine promise was made by one member of the Godhead to another, the Father to the Son. This tells us that we're saved as sinners. We're saved not because we're worthy of something. We're not saved because we finally figured it all out and we were really wise, more wise than others, that we could choose this. It's because the Father formed this plan in his own mind and then in time lovingly draws those he's given to the Son, draws them to himself to receive the gift of eternal life. And the Son loves to save those. The Son loves to receive those that the Father's given to them. They don't deserve it. They don't even seek it. But he knows that they're the gift that the Father prepared for him before time began. If you want to see the conclusion of all this, you read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 
I really don't have time to read it, but it's verses 24 to 28. It does tell us there that, that at the end of time, still in the future, the Son is going to give everything, all those that the Father gave him, including himself, going to give all of that back to the Father. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28. And when that happens, all the redemptive purposes of God that were formed in his own mind in eternity past will finally be realized. And it says in verse 28, because at that time, God will be all in all. It's amazing. It was with this eternal purpose in mind that Jesus said those words out loud that night to his father. Let me give you two quick implications of all this that we can draw from it. Here's one. I need to give you a sort of a warning what I'm about to say because it's very humbling. This is going to be a moment of graphic humility here. Okay, Warning. We are secondary when it comes to the scope of God's eternal salvation plan. It's not about us. The Father's primary concern in this plan is glorifying the Son, honoring the Son. And the Son's primary goal and purpose and thought is honoring the Father. That reality, that our salvation is ultimately not about us, but all about the glory of the Father and the Son, that's humbling. But it's also wonderful and amazing. A final implication we can draw. It has to do with the question that some have sometimes. I've been asked this by people. They stumble upon all these statements that are repeatedly found in Scripture about the sovereignty of God, and they'll ask a question like this, well, how, how can I know that I've been given to Christ by the Father? How can I know that I'm one of the sheep? Well, the answer is not that complicated. It is found in Scripture that God promises eternal life to all those who receive the gospel in faith. In other words, those who trust in Christ and receive the gospel and want to follow Christ as the Lord of their life and have their sins forgiven, they are the ones that the Father has given to the Son. We're never told in Scripture to ask that other question. We're never told to wonder about whether we're the elect or not. We're instead told this, believe in Jesus. Receive eternal life. We're told that believers are those who do that. Richard Phillips puts it this way. We know our election not by peering into God's inaccessible book of life, but by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the question that some people ask is not really the, the most important question. The more important question is this. Have you come to know the true God? You might know some things about God, many things about God, and they could be true what you know. But you have not received eternal life unless he is your God, unless you are worshiping him and devoted to him. And that can only happen one way, through a humble, repentant, submissive trust in Christ, all that he is and all that he did. That's the important question. Do you know God? Let's pray. We're going to conclude our service today by observing the Lord's table where we get to remember the elements that represent his body and his blood, the very sacrifice that he was facing on the night that he prayed this prayer. But it's a good time to do that.
because of this passage we've studied, this profound articulation of something that's beyond our comprehension, the eternal mind of God, his eternal plan. But he wanted us to study it. He wanted us to believe it. Because it's true. Our Father, we come to the table now at your invitation. All those who have come to faith in Christ, who have received the gift of eternal life, who have come to trust in Christ as Lord and Savior, we come not because we're part of a particular church. That's not the issue. It's we know you because we know your Son. We come to the table gladly rejoicing over the fact that all of our sin is paid for in the death of Christ, past, present, and future sin. Thank you for that, Lord. We know we don't deserve the gift of eternal life. There's nothing we can do to merit it. We know it's a free gift by your grace that our faith is even something you give to us, that our faith is is even just our, our hands reaching out to receive the gift that you've authorized the Son to give. So Lord, thank you for these moments we can conclude our service by remembering that hour that had come. The hour of Jesus' ultimate humiliation and death. Father, I do pray for anyone here who cannot say that they've received the gift of eternal life because they've trusted in Christ alone as their Savior. I pray that you would create faith in their heart by your Spirit and by the truth that they might understand their sinfulness and cry out to you for forgiveness to become followers of Christ. In his name we pray, amen.